Thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, my name is Beth Bromley. I'm the director of the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. We do a lot of training and technical support with the home team at DMH and also with FSP. I'm a psychiatrist at UCLA um, and I'm just one of, uh, of a very minor part of the training today. We have a whole team of people both that helped us to develop this training and then also that are going to present for you the content and we'll we won't introduce ourselves all at once right now we'll we'll um, jump in as we go through the slides um, we're going to talk today about using a harm reduction approach to address covid with individuals experiencing homelessness um, and i just want to thank everyone who has jumped in to help us think about the content for this training um, it really emerged very quickly uh, we had wonderful collaboration from odr and uh, it's great to have Joanna here on the line with us um, doing a big part of this training. Um, so real team effort. And I just wanna thank everyone for doing that. Uh, so just very briefly, I, I think I said all this already. We, uh, PMHP is a center at UCLA. We do, we do training and, and uh, try to respond to needs, uh, particularly with the home team or the FSP program. And so today, little bit of an agenda. We're going to start by talking, I'll, I'll start by telling you a little about why harm reduction seems like approach that, an approach that's very relevant right now. Uh, Joanna is then going to give us a great intro to what harm reduction is all about, and then that's going to set us up to go into more detail about the harm reduction approach uh, in four sections here. Um, first, I'll tell you a little about what I call laying the foundation, just about exploring with clients. Joanna's gonna tell us about assessing a desire for change in a client. And then we're gonna have a little bit of a discussion about how to move forward together with clients. And then finally, uh, a note about uh, being reliable and following through with clients. So why harm reduction now? Um, we are all living right now with a continuum of risk, with a spectrum of risk. And uh, I wanted to have us just start by thinking about ourselves at home, um, the kinds of things that come up for us in our home lives right now. Um, because this is really the reality right now that we uh, recognize that some behaviors are safer than others, but there aren't any things that are entirely risk-free that we could do. So if you think about how you make choices about when to go to the grocery store, how often to go to the grocery store, whether to get takeout or cook at home, um, how to wear a mask even, when to wear a mask, and then how you're gonna manage that when you're out in public. Um, these are things that we're all thinking a lot about now, how we reduce our risk, what are the strategies we wanna to choose to reduce our risk? And then how much risk can we live with? How much risk is worth it to us personally? And we're all making different choices about that. We all have a different calculus in our head uh, about what uh, uh, our risk tolerance is and what we're able to do to reduce it. And this is what harm reduction is all about. Harm reduction is normally used with individuals who are using drugs or alcohol, um, and it was developed in that context, but it's perfectly applicable to this situation where there's risk all around us. And I think the other thing harm reduction is relevant for right now is that 
both in our own home lives, but also for our clients, we don't have perfect solutions for them. There are many options, none of them are perfect. And it is the case that the very best we can offer is to try to find ways to reduce the negative consequences of the risky behaviors that we're all engaged in, we're all engaged in risk behavior. How can we maybe try to reduce the negative consequences of that? And I, you know, I call this the best care we can offer, but the truth is this is actually very meaningful, very valuable care for, for ourselves and for others. So this is just some imaginary um, challenges that come up in a context of risk, some dilemmas that we all confront, find ourselves in when there's risk to things. Um, you may not have encountered these precise situations, um, but you might recognize the dynamics um, and the kinds of things that emerge in a situation like this. So you're working with a client who's in a totally decked out tent in a pretty crowded encampment, and this is someone who's just like, you know, not very interested in moving the tent to be further from others, covering his or her face, uh, washing hands, you know, just, just maybe not that interested in doing that right now. Um, a person who's at very high risk because of medical comorbidities, for instance, who uh, probably could, you know, could, could get into a project room key, uh, 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 a site where uh, there, there's a, a bit more of a ability to isolate. Um, but that individual really doesn't perceive herself to be at risk and doesn't want to lose her spot. Um, we might encounter people who are asymptomatic, but they happen to live next to someone who just got a positive test result. And that's someone who, you know, has gone about his or her business, of course, and uh, isn't really interested in changing that. Um, and then we run into people who really want an option and we might not be able to give them an option that they want. They might misqualify for Project Room Key, something like that where the system just isn't aligning to match their needs. So in these situations, we find ourselves really stuck. We feel responsible for a situation. We can't control it. We really wanna help our clients but we can't always get to a shared understanding of what's able, what we're able to do there. We feel desperately we want to do more, but we don't always know what more there is to do. I have to change it. I can't change it. I can't control it. This is a bind. And harm reduction is very good for this sort of scenario. So just to acknowledge for all of you that this work is very, very hard right now. These are all natural feelings, natural thoughts to have in a situation of risk. I can't stand this. I'm very angry at this person because of their behavior right now. Um, I really hate that this is happening to my client. Uh, I'm nervous about this. It's very easy to feel anxious and afraid. And one of the things that we're gonna talk about is that when we ourselves are feeling uh, afraid, we're feeling helpless, frustrated. Sometimes we have a hard time slowing down to listen. And uh, roadblocks to listening is a thing I'll talk about later. We sometimes start to do things that prevent us from really listening and engaging. When we can find a way to feel safe and to accept the reality of our circumstance, we get more effective and we can listen and explore and we can expand options. And the evidence shows that this kind of approach, this harm reduction approach saves lives. We build connections, we find way 
ways to save lives. And that's the essence of why harm reduction seems very relevant right now. And I'm gonna turn it over to Joanna, who's gonna uh, uh, tell us about what harm reduction is all about. Hello everyone. My name is Joanna Burton Martinez and I work with Los Angeles County with the Office of Diversion and Reentry. Um, my background is working in needle exchange and working with sex workers. So my harm reduction background has been a lot with talking or discussing with folks about how to reduce the risk surrounding sex and drugs. And I'm going to try to apply some of this to the COVID-19 safety measures we're trying to promote. So what is harm reduction? Um, I like to think of it as a compassionate offering of when you have supplies or information to share. The person in front of you now can make a more informed decision or choice and using the supplies and information you offered them. Um, the difference of the harm reduction approach, I think, might be in the holistic care. So we are looking at, this is extremely practical harm reduction. The folks we serve may need something today or now, and what could we do today or now to help get them to the other side? We recognize there is a continuum of risk. It's not just high risk and no risk. And the circumstances under which someone has to assess their own risk, and in that moment, make a decision of what's the best play. Uh, harm reduction does utilize advocacy, whether either we are advocating for ourselves or for another person. And there's going to be something empowering in using this harm reduction approach. And part of this, you guys, is um, to support uh, your own work in this field in a typically high turnover setting. Um, so I want you to apply a little harm reduction to yourself. Now, what I like about harm reduction is um, we use it in public health, certainly. In needle exchange, you would drop off a used syringe in exchange for a sterile one. That is a public health move. But for example, in harm reduction, you would talk to the person, ask how they're doing, see what they need. If you didn't use harm reduction, you could feasibly take that sterile syringe, throw it at the person, and run in the other direction. That's just needle distribution. Harm reduction is the person side of it, yeah? And with this harm reduction, it's recognizing a handful of principles um, we've been using in the movements. That would include the health and dignity of the person, right? You're working with the person, you're not telling them what to do. There's a certain amount of agency when the participants or the client could tell you what they need. And then you start from there. There's going to be the principles of involvement, including the participants. Oh, that's fine. We can leave it there. The participants would be a part of the conversation. And it breaks up the us versus them. It's now more of a, a we thing. In harm reduction, you may have heard the line, you meet people where they are at. And I've heard that a lot. It could be physically, like you, um, if they're in the tents, that's where the two outreach workers go, yeah? It also means a touch of the emotional, and this is where the conversation's going today. If someone's not having it, whatever that is, be it getting tested for COVID-19 or using condoms all the time, um, you got to work with what you got. You are meeting them where they're at in that conversation today, knowing people's needs and expression can change all day throughout the time with your future work relationship with this person. What I like about harm reduction is that you are going to celebrate the wins and you're going to try to focus on the positive all along while 
you're not going to minimize the true risk and damage that can happen in high-risk behavior. That's why we're here, to share the information so someone could take the steps they feel they can take to help reduce the risk associated with their behavior. So harm reduction is not perfect. It's just an approach I elected to adopt a good 25 years ago because it made sense. It made sense when you are trying to reach the highest risk population or the folks most vulnerable, you gotta take a few extra steps, right? And that would include maybe um, how you treat the person, which is with respect or how you would wanna be treated. With the gentle reminder, a lot of folks don't treat this person with respect. So in harm reduction, almost being just good about it is a service in of itself letting someone be. It's not the magic bullet, this harm reduction. And with this recalibration, if you can't control the person in front of you, but support them, it's just a gentle reminder that this isn't about you. And there's something that we want to encourage the providers on this call to um, kind of embrace that this person is on their own journey and your job is a conduit, <laughs> right? You share information and supplies and you answer questions and you are available. But if they aren't gonna do that thing, you can't force them. But what can you do in your relationship to find the one thing in common that you both can do? Harm reduction will recognize a lot. We recognize the inequalities um, of this thing we have in life. Uh, we recognize um, it's very important to be both practical and realistic. There's a few things harm reduction is not though. It is not a free pass to do whatever you want, have at it. And I've seen this interpretation, so I'm flagging beware. Harm reduction doesn't mean you could do whatever you want, whenever you want, to whomever you want. There is a true principle of doing no harm, <laughs> right? So as providers, um, it's okay to, you know, have your own boundaries <laughs> and just it is perfectly fine to have an honest conversation about someone's risk without enabling. Do you know what I mean? Like you can get to a good conversation with someone, even though you're like, wow, I really wish they weren't doing these things. But in order to have that conversation, you really got to approach it with the least amount of judgment possible. I think the people that we serve are pretty smart and resourceful. And if they think you are judging them, even a small part in the back of your mind, the exchange is going to go pretty flat. So harm reduction, um, it doesn't say have at it, and it doesn't exclude all forms of what the person needs. If AA or Alcohol Anonymous worked for you, that's awesome. It may not work for the person in front of you. Okay. But what if the person's like, but I really like AA. As a provider, you do what you can to get them in AA. And this is just an example. It's basically, what does the person need, and what can I do to get you from point A to B? And this is true for me and you and them. The person who receives the services is going to be their own expert in their own life. You are privy to information, services, maybe bureaucracy or supplies that they don't have. So please share or offer those. But at the end of the day, it's that person, them own selves that are going to do that thing to take care of themselves. Even if you serve the same client every day for an hour, five days a week, they have their entire lives 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you do the best you can when you got them and then trust or have faith. They are going to do the best they can when they can with what they can in that moment.
Great. Okay, Joanna, thank you. I think it's back to me here. And I, um, what I'm going to do is talk a little about PACE and ORS, um, laying the foundation. This is about exploring with clients. And so if you could think while I go through this about um, interesting things you've learned from clients when you've ended up with an opportunity to listen, things that may have surprised you, um, things that became really important that, uh, that, that came up when you found a way to really listen to one another. Um, that's a thing we can talk about at the end of my section. We'll go into this. So uh, here what I'm gonna talk about is really just uh, an initial step of exploring with a client. And here's our scenario we're gonna use just as a example to think through in this section. Um, person I'm working with is coughing, doesn't wanna take a test, you know, really thinks he's going to have to move if the test is positive. So best not to test. Um, so, you know, I can deal with this. This is all right. When it's here as words in a bubble on the screen, feels totally tolerable, right? And actually, even the first time I hear about it, I'm like, okay, fine. I can deal with this. He doesn't want to test. I totally get it. I also get it, he's had this experience before that someone makes him move or he loses control. And I totally get where these fears are coming from. Um, but you know, when this goes on a little bit, I start to get pretty nervous about him, about me. I start to panic a bit. I start to, you know, wake up in the middle of the night thinking about him and who might be around him. I really wanna know. And it starts to get uncomfortable for me, uh, this scenario. So when I get in that uncomfortable space, um, sometimes it gets harder to listen. Um, and it's, a, it's a, sort of a nice way to think about these roadblocks to listening. These are things we find ourselves doing when we're uncomfortable. <laughs> we start to warn someone. <laughs> we start to provide solutions. We do that so well. Why don't we do this for you? Why don't we try this? Here's a thing we could do. Do you want to talk to this person? I'm not listening when I'm providing solutions. We start to get uh, approving of someone. Oh, I really like when you do it that way. And I don't think this thing over here is that good. Um, so these kinds of things, I think we all recognize, they prevent us from uh, being open to listening. So what we try to do, and this comes from motivational interviewing, which is really just the approach in harm reduction to a large extent. Um, what we try to do with ourselves is think about pace. Pace can be discussed as just a way of being with clients. And pace stands for partnership, acceptance, compassion, and evocation. Again, this is my way of being with a client. This is what I remind myself of. I'm here for partnership. And I'm here to minimize power imbalances. As Joanna was saying, making that client know he is in charge of his life. Um, and, and I'm going to work to be in partnership by exploring my client's point of view. Um, acceptance. I'm going to respect the client's knowledge uh, and, and honor his experience and also his power and autonomy, his skill. I'm going to uh, be in a mode where I'm respectful of what he knows about his, his life. And I'm going to practice compassion. I'm going to stay interested in my client. I'm going to be curious about what things are like 
for him. And I'm going to find areas where I can empathize with what he's going through. That doesn't mean that I don't want to help him. I do. I'm going to stay engaged and involved in trying to uh, uh, help him to suffer less. But I'm going to stay empathic. So this is just a set of examples of things that I might uh, remind myself of, think to myself in line with pace in a scenario where my client's coughing and you know, doesn't want to test. Uh, remind myself, I'm here to be uh, with my client to help him be in charge of his health. It's a statement of partnership. Uh, I respect his skills, wisdom, and ability. I'm able to stay curious about his needs and wants in order to find ways to help him. And I can listen closely to what he has to say. I don't need to judge him. Um, these are the sorts of things I say to myself when I find myself getting a little tense, uh, wanting to lecture, finding ways to give advice. It helps me to slow down a little bit. That's what pace is all about. So what we do next, ORS is simply an acronym for some very basic tools we use with the client, what we say to the client uh, to help to explore. ORS stands for open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections or reflective listening and summaries. Um, these are the sorts of kind of, you know, we think of these as basic counseling skills. They're so powerful. Uh, and I like ORS as an acronym. It's just easy to remember. These are some things we can do that are helpful to explore with clients. Open-ended questions. What have you heard about your situation? An affirmation, noticing when the client um, is describing that they've been through a lot, that they're a survivor. You say that to them. Um, reflections. I hear that you're saying the nurse you spoke to didn't seem to care about you. Um, and then summaries. Before I go on, I want to summarize what you've said to me. So sometimes open-ended, closed-ended questions are um, when we find ourselves with closed-ended questions. It's a good way to be, you know, have that uh, red flag go up like, oh, here I go again with my closed-ended questions. Do you know how sick you can get? <laughs> it's a yes or no question, right? <laughs> yes, I do. No, I don't. I'm not sure what the utility of this closed-ended question is. Aren't you interested in finding out if you're positive? <laughs> the answer is no, I'm not. <laughs> um, you don't want to give it to anyone else, do you? A little bit of shaming in there and that closed ended questions. Uh, can you stay putting your tent and not infect anyone? <laughs> Look, I say these things, I use closed ended questions. They're not off limits, they're okay, but they're actually very good for us to notice because they're not really a mode of exploring with the client. The open ended questions, on the other hand, are the things we use when we really want to know more. We just really want to understand where the client is. What would you like to know about the test? Um, what, what might I be able to tell you about what the test is like or what happens afterwards? How might the test results change your feelings? Um, what experiences like this have you had in the past? I get a sense with this dilemma, there's something that's happened before this client is responding to, and I'm curious about that. So those are open-ended questions. So what else, what, it, what comes next? So an affirmation. Again, an affirmation, a reflection, a summary, very important that these are not manufactured by us, but that they really come from what the client is saying, that we're listening closely and we can find a way to affirm. I respect you for how much you've had to endure. I know you're someone who really cares about your neighbors. 
these are, are uh, highlighting strengths for the individual. A reflection, I hear you saying it's hard to trust all of these new people. Um, I, I can hear that from the client and I can reframe it, paraphrase it back for the client. Then the client says, yes, that's kind of right. Or they say, no, you don't get it at all. Let me explain it again. Can be very helpful. Um, summaries you'll use less often, but they can be very useful. Before we go on to this next topic, I just, I want to be sure I understand what you've told me. Uh, what I'm hearing is I think you're feeling frustrated and none of this is very comfortable. Is that about right? So some of those summaries before closing down a topic can be very helpful. The only thing that I think is important to note here is that um, there are clients for whom more exploration is, is not what's needed in the moment. Um, so a minority of situations, but there are clients for whom more exploration isn't, uh, isn't the right strategy. Could take a while to, to recognize this, but it's important to keep this in mind. So sometimes you'd be working with a client who's really very confusing to talk to. So an affirmation or a summary is really pretty hard for us to process. Um, and that's important to notice because this might be someone, they're confusing to us um, for a reason. Um, usually when we talk to people, we can understand the gist of what they're saying. And if you find yourself unable to do that, it might be that the, the individual is delirious um, or they may be psychotic. They may in fact be disorganized and it's hard to understand. So clients, of course, that are sleepy, distractible, um, you know, they don't recognize you, um, intoxicated at the moment, uh, you know, this, this just is an important thing to notice. Um, and then over time that you're really noticing that your efforts at exploring are, are, are not really grounded in what you understand to be really going on. And these might be clients for whom it's useful to figure out if there's a referral that's, that's important to have another person come with you to meet the client as well. I think I'll, I'll stop there for a little uh, check-in with the chat, see yeah, if we have any thoughts, comments. It looks like there's a comment from Colby. David, are you speaking? Sorry. I, I was just going to say exactly what you said, uh, mm -hmm. that Colby has a very thoughtful question in the chat box. And um, she, she asks, how would you talk to a doctor or another health professional that imposes their beliefs for what's best for the client, regardless of what that client tells them of their own experiences? Very thoughtful question. So um, I think I would start with pace. Actually, the, the first thing that's good to do is to remind ourselves about where this health professional might be coming from, and maybe even to come up with some uh, empathic hypothesis about why this individual might be imposing his or her beliefs. Um, that helps me. Again, I, I, I'm not saying that's what you say to the person, but it helps me to think, gosh, I wonder if this person is really feeling anxious too. Um, I wonder if this is a person who had a personal experience of one way of getting through this and, and holds on to that very deeply and maybe feels it's gotta be right for the client too. So I, I'll, I'll just try to wonder about that first in my mind. Um, I think you could go at this scenario in a few different ways. I think um, the reality is this strategy rarely works. So you could talk about it as just simply ineffective, <laughs> you know, it, but not likely to really get very far potentially with the client. Um, it, 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 you know, it might be worth um, asking them whether they've had prior experience with this, that they, um, 
you know, ha have have they advocated for this strategy before with clients and feel very strongly about it? Um, these are all the same harm reduction approaches, actually. Uh, pace, <laughs> having some open-ended questions for that individual, um, maybe affirming where you really can tell they seem to really care for this client. They seem to really want what's what they think is best for this client. Affirm that. Um, and, and then see whether you might be able to summarize for them. Sometimes that helps that other individual uh, notice that there are more options. Um, so I think you can use all the harm reduction strategies we're talking about in this scenario. <laughs> okay, I'll hand it back to Joanna. So I get um, one of my favorite topics is the stages of change. So I'll be talking about the stages of change and kind of lining up so it's that much easier for you to distinguish or get a read on the client's stage of change. So um, in review, you may have learned this, the stages of change you know, is officially uh, the trans-theoretical model of behavior change. It's a big, long word. So we're going to call it stages of change. There's a few different models. Uh, the one we're sharing with you today has six stages. Um, we recognize a few extra ones. And the thing about the stages of change is that everyone goes through it. So all the providers on this line, if you are trying to start something or stop something in your own life, you're probably experiencing um, some aspect of these stages of change. And uh, for this one section, it'll be about how to get the read on someone else's. What we aren't going to learn is how to move someone from one stage to the next. Like it's impossible to get someone to another stage. You could only basically control your own stages, if that um, reads. I'm going to give you the highlights and then I'm going to speak a little bit more in detail. Um, so with the stages of change, we're looking at pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation or planning, action, maintenance, and relapse or return. Yeah. So, okay, we could use masks as an example, the face coverings that have come up in the last few months. So if someone was like, not only um, am I not going to wear the mask, I don't think they're talking to me about it. Like there could be someone who's like, I don't think I need to wear a mask. So they could have discounted it or it didn't even occur to them to wear a mask pre-contemplation. Now, let's say this person is like, mm, I've been seeing stuff on the news. It looks like everyone's wearing them. My neighbors, if someone's thinking about it, right? I don't know. Do I want it? Seemed... Now they're thinking about it. That's contemplation. Preparation or planning is making the plan. So say now the person made the decision and they're like, I am going to make myself a mask and I'm going to make it by 5 p.m. today. Right. So they got a time frame and they got some action. The action is doing it and you got to do that thing a good six months before they consider it maintenance. So we aren't at mask maintenance yet. But let's say the person's been giving it a go. All right. After six months, they're still wearing that mask. OK. Now, let's say one day they get up, they got to pick up something from the local store and they don't wear their mask. It's a relapse. 
All right, they're like, I don't know, I forgot about it. I was doing this one thing. I, 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 you don't need to make an excuse with relapse. We'll explore this more as a stage, but to know relapse is a part of this composite. It's not something different or special in the corner. Statistically, it will be more normal for someone to relapse than to quit something the first time and never do it again for the duration of their natural life, yeah? So um, we're just embracing that uh, resuming a behavior you were trying to stop or start may occur, and that's perfectly normal. Okay, so the benefits of this. Spending some time on this to make your life a little easier. Because once you get a better idea of which stages and what the person is letting you know, whether they're telling you outright or non-verbally letting you know, it makes your job that much easier to figure out what will you pursue in conversation and what are you just going to drop, right? Okay, so back to that pre-contemplation. So right now, the person is either not considering it or they didn't even um, count it in, okay? Um, let's say drug rehab, all right? Certainly this person's heard of it, but they are not having it. <laughs> If someone gives you no indication of interest, if they didn't bring it up in the conversation, or if you brought up something and they don't run with it, leave it alone. When someone's in pre-con, the worst thing you could do is try to persuade them. You don't force the issue. That doesn't make them jump to contemplation stage. It actually might make them shackle up and bounce. So in pre-contemplation, you're just getting a feel of where they're at, and that's the time you're building a rapport with the client. It's time well spent, but you're getting to know each other and they're getting a pretty good idea. They could just be, speak honestly with you and you'll have a conversation about risk without freaking out. Contemplation. You know someone's in contemplation when they're talking about it and they haven't made that decision, right? It could be like, like the testing, right? Um, yeah, I hear I can get tested for COVID, but they don't have a cure, so what's the point? But what if I have symptoms and I don't even know it? When someone's kind of going back and forth and talking through it, your job as a provider is to give them that airtime and that emotional space to talk it out, tease it out. And in their own words, they'll tell you what falls in the plus list, what falls in the not plus. Preparation, plan. This is when you make a plan. And so be careful. Someone may say casually, man, I am so sick of this. I'm gonna get tested. Now they could say that casually or they could be making a declaration. So as a provider, you're using your active listening skills, yeah? If they're showing indication, they wanna do something about this, you help them build that plan. And you just talk through what's feasible, what can they do, what can they try? Action is when they're doing it. If someone was doing that thing, as a provider, you don't have to check in on this all the time, right? It's like, hey, you aren't smoking, no more smoking, how's it not smoking thing? Rooting for you, like if you keep it on the topic of conversation, the person's like, ah, I just wanna. So you can check in every once in a while, but the thing about action is that it can get, it can get confused with maintenance, right? If I go to the gym three days in a row, I'm a health nut. But really, you got to do it for a while <laughs> and endure and hang in there for the maintenance mode. After sticking with it a good six months, that's considered, considered maintenance. 
it's around this time you could check in with the client if they want to do something differently. If folks just wanted to stay six feet away from everyone the first six months, that's one thing. But what if now they're ready to get tested? Their goals may have changed after they achieve a certain amount of, you know, um, maintenance, if you would. Okay, so the relapse. If someone did relapse or lapse, and I'm going to give you, um, have you guys heard the difference of lapse, relapse? So lapse, as it has been described to me, is um, lapse would be like resuming the behavior, but not the whole scene. Well, example, say somebody stops smoking. All right, they have not smoked in six months. They go to a party. They hit someone up for a cigarette, right? They have a, one smoke at the cigarette. That's a lapse. The next day, they don't smoke anymore, right? They did that one thing once. Now, let's say that person bums a smoke at the party. And then the next day, as soon as they wake up, they get a pack of cigarettes and they drink their coffee. And now it's resumed, right? They're purchasing. They have a ritual down. And that is more like relapse. So if people tell you, ah, oh, I messed up. I blew it. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. You're like, nah, you're right on time. When people relapse, something is letting you know the plan wasn't tight. They may need to do things a little differently, right? Um, and that differently could be like if that person who wanted to stop smoking, maybe they don't get to drink black coffee in the morning, green tea. Green tea doesn't taste so good with the cigarettes. And so when someone does relapse, you just kind of go, all right, do you want to get back on the horse now? Do you want to reevaluate what happened? Look at some more options. And so it's just that light encouragement that um, no one blew it, right? You just, you can try again if you, if you can. In MI or motivational interviewing, um, what you're keying into is someone's ambivalence. And ambivalence means, um, it's when you have mixed feelings about something, yeah? And the person is unable to choose between the course of two actions. And so sometimes you'll see that on, um, was it a seesaw, right? Like maybe this, maybe that. And so when folks are talking about this out loud, then you just let them talk it through. So how to take these opportunities, if you will, when someone's kind of like airing it out, like, I don't know, should I get tested? If they don't have a vaccine, what's the point? But everyone's telling me to, like that is a, allowable to let them kind of talk through the back and forth. Your job as a provider isn't to call them on it. <laughs> it's to allow the time to like, kind of get there in their own journey. And then you could give them prompt questions to talk about it a little more. The ambivalence is an integral part of this process because it lets you know that person, they're wrapping their mind around it and they're weighing the pros and cons. For providers, we have a few tips. When doing this work, um, try not to feel like you need to save or rescue anybody. That happens and when it does, um, you just gotta dial it back and remind yourself, it's not my job to save this person, just do the best I can. Try not to take it personally, although that is probably the hardest advice I've had to follow, but it's true. Whatever that person did in front of you may have nothing to do with you, right? They had a whole life up to that moment and it could have spilled right in front of you. Um, don't assume you guys have the same mutual goal. 
Yeah. <laughs> Don't assume what worked for you in your journey is going to be the perfect recipe for them. And please don't try to do this alone. There's lots of people either in the field or in the movements um, that you could vent to or laugh with. And I say this with love, this is not about you. Embrace this liberating moment. If the interaction isn't about you and just them, maybe it'll be that much easier to go to work that next day. On the do list, uh, please. If you don't know something, it's okay to say, I don't know. I say it all the time at work. You just got to follow up with the person when you do find the answer. <laughs> Roll with it. <laughs> don't forget your humor. Celebrate the wins. And that could be like, my car had enough gas to get to work today, right? Celebrate the wins. Um, learn from your mistakes when you can. And number one, this could have been the first thing I said. You have to take care of yourself. As important as this work is, it will never be more important <laughs> than you taking care of yourself because you will not be able to provide if you're a mess. Along this ride, um, you could just ask yourself, am I maintaining the spirit of MI? And you just check your own head in interactions. If you find yourself getting caught up into it, go, ooh, there's a whole spirit check here I want to be a part of. So I'm Elizabeth Mackey. Um, I'm a social worker. I work with the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership with Beth and Lisa. Um, harm reduction has always been a huge interest of mine. I do a bit of training around it now um, through what we're doing in the moment um, and have done in the past and have worked in some settings that really utilize it as a framework. Um, I'm going to talk about how we sort of meld the things together that Beth and Joanna have talked about so far. So this sort of what harm reduction is grounded in, why, why it's an important perspective, especially to utilize right now, how it can help you as a provider, and then motivational interviewing. Um, what is the spirit of it and what are the skills are that, that you can use? What are the, what's the backbone of MI to use right now? Um, I want to just kind of put some of these ideas together and talk about a concept called the dignity of risk. And Colby, I really appreciated your question about what to do when you're working with, let's see, I'm gonna look back at your wording. Yeah, when you're working with a, a health professional that imposes their belief on what's best for the client regardless of what the patient tells them of their own experiences. So this is super common and it's such a human experience. And I really, I immediately thought of this concept in that where you know, I, I think I have my own set of like tips and tricks to use uh, with my team members in the past when I did more direct service on how you can get buy-in to work together towards supporting a client's autonomy when you and another health professional who may have more power than you in the situation, depending on their role, um, when you have a differing approach. And I, Beth, you did you you answered that so so perfectly as to what the what you can do. You can apply MI right. But sort of the why behind it, that sort of human, why, why does it matter that people are able to make their own decisions? Like we're acknowledging that everyone is the expert in their own life, but why is that so important? And it's, it's because we need this dignity of risk. It's sort of this existential thing where we need to make our own mistakes. We need to be the, the sole decider, the, the person who has choice and who will be accountable for and responsible for the impact of those decisions. We need to be the person guided by maybe a supportive professional to weigh out pros and cons and learn for ourselves. And I, I think 
this is this goes outside of the clinical realm. You know, I think a lot about the dignity of risk and basic life decisions, like getting in a relationship. How who's had the experience of getting a job, moving somewhere, getting in a relationship? Relationship is a really good example where we've probably all dated someone at some point in our lives that our friends didn't think was the best idea or family but we did it anyway. And it maybe didn't work out, but we wouldn't have learned the lessons that we learned without that. And the same goes for every decision in which risk is involved, which is pretty much everything in life. So even now in this context, there's lots of risk. Um, the, the populations that you serve already had a lot of risk. And now there's this added layer, added complexity. It's hard to get perfect information or perfect resources. And even now, it's so important to respect that people have the dignity, need the dignity of risk. This is also called therapeutic risk. It's also called the right to fail. Those might be instances in which you've heard of it. All right, what else is on this slide here is this neglect over protect continuum. And just to touch on that, because I think that's, it really, it maps well onto what you were just saying, Joanna, um, about when you're working with folks, if you keep, uh, when you're talking about the difference in action and maintenance, if as a provider, you keep bringing up the topic of the thing you, you're deep down hoping this person will change at the beginning of every conversation, even if you feel like you're not trying to be directive, even if you're like, I just wanna check in on this again, how's that smoking going? It's gonna come off like an agenda. And in a subtle way, that can, that can push you in this sort of overprotective side of the spectrum here. So on this continuum, we've got neglect, which is often the misinterpretation of a harm reduction approach that like people are going to do what they're going to do. The consequences are the consequences. I'm just going to support their autonomy and not touch it, not, not touch the conversation. Overprotect is being really directive and setting agendas and warning someone only about the risks of what they're doing, only about the consequences. And we want to stay in the middle. We're going to veer towards each side all the time. That, that's totally normal. But I really think that's a great point, Joanna, about like, yeah, even if you are just sort of bringing something up too much, or if you're only talking to people, again, about the risks or consequences, one of the techniques that harm reduction, especially applied to substance use, really, really uh, values is talking about the life affirming um, results of the substance use. Like, what is that doing for a person that has meaning to them? Because that's going to get into what their real experience is. And that's where we want to sit. We want to know the the entirety of someone's experience. We want them to feel like we care about the entirety of their experience. So those are just a couple concepts. One of the things that Beth brought up earlier when she was, I believe it was you, Beth, um, was talking about why harm reduction we talk about increasing options and using MI skills, using pace and ORs, using ways to um, to hold within yourself a, a respect for and sort of mindful approach to partnering with um, people you serve and then using these skills to elicit how someone really feels and allow them to have a reflective process on that. Those are things that we can do in conversation with clients to help elucidate where potential areas for change may be without targeting the thing that they may have said they don't want to change. So this increasing options bit, again, from sort of a more traditional harm reduction approach, I kind of think of it as how harm reduction is so grounded in a social justice perspective, um, that advocacy, that taking action to literally increase options to where there is not an option for someone to uh, go about life in the way they want to, people who work within this 
this perspective are really the onus is on them to try and create more options. So that's one way of looking at it. And both are really applicable here. So I, I like to think of sort of, again, this like, how can you use MI skills to get away from black and white thinking, see those shades of gray, see what's in between, look for little nuances. What are the areas you can adjust? Let's say outside of a COVID specific example, you've got a substance user who does not want to stop their use. Okay. Well, what else is going on in their life? What what other aspects of their well-being, health, social environment, um, supports, resources? What what else is going on with them that could be maybe enhanced to promote safety and reduce risk without targeting, without zeroing in on let's reduce your use? Um, Damon, I see your comment. Thanks. Thank you for mentioning what worked for me may not work for client. It's not about me. Yeah. That's so hard for us. Right. We, I mean, our, we signed up for this work because we want to help. And it's really hard when we think we see something so clearly to step outside of that and check it at the door. It's, it's a lot of work. Right. All right. And then let's take a COVID example. So, uh, here we've got the dilemma of an, a symptomatic person with a positive test and an available isolation and quarantine bed. And this person just wants to be left alone. So what, if we looked at this just as is, without any exploration, we would say, hopeless, right? Like this person doesn't wanna go, they're at high risk, this is a bad situation. So that's kind of the black and white thinking, but what are the gray areas in there? Does anyone have any thoughts? What could we, what else could we explore? And think about pace and ors, think about the ways Maybe there are ways that we can affirm this person's choice, really, really affirm that they want to be left alone, that that is how they feel and that is what they want. Um, what can we do? What, how can we show compassion to, it must be really hard that you're in this, this, this situation and you've had a positive test, how shocking and how scary. And then taking that further with ORS, what are the, the things that we can say what would not work in this situation? What if we started asking some closed-ended questions like, you know, do you want to do this? Yes, no. Um, might not get sort of the same res response. Or if we had directed questions that clearly communicated our agenda of we really want to get you into this I and Q bed, those might shut down the conversation. Okay, Beth, we've got an option is to give him what he needs to stay to find out what he thinks would help him stay safely, right? So really focusing on where the options are, what how, how can safety be enhanced without compromising, accepting and working within the will, this individual's willingness to, or sorry, unwillingness to move into a bed. Does anyone have any other thoughts, any other strategies on this? Feel free to think about it. I'm gonna go through a few more slides um, that talk about rolling with resistance, if anyone's heard of that from, the, from motivational interviewing. Um, but feel free to throw things up in the comments. Again, this is a symptomatic person, positive test, available bed, doesn't want to go. All right. So rolling with resistance is more guidance for, for what you as a provider can do when you feel you, you are uh, engaging with someone who is resisting, basically. Like maybe you accidentally set some agenda. Maybe, maybe you, in true in my format, offered you asked for permission, offered some information, and that was even met with resistance. It wasn't even agenda setting. You know, for whatever reason, it comes up, and this happens all the time. This is again, as uh, Joanna was going through these stages of change. If people are not in that contemplation or pre-contemplation, 
it's tough. You're not gonna, if the ambivalence isn't great, if it's really someone's pre decided to not uh, make a decision in a certain direction, it's gonna come up. So what can you do? What can you do here? You can use reflective listening. So those are, you can have multiple forms of reflective listening, simple reflections. You can reflect feelings or thoughts or make double-sided reflections. Those are when you compare one thing and that another thing is occurring at the same time. So pairing together the complex reality of someone's experience. <laughs> I see some comments up here. Uh, Beth, who wants to change? I don't, I'm pre-contemplative about everything. I identify with that. Uh, shifting focus is another strategy. So let's not worry about whether or not you will stay here tonight. Let's focus on what you want long-term for a while. So really reframing the, the scope of what you're considering and taking some, in, some sort of high pressure decisions off the table, that can help with exploration. Reframing a limitation as a strength. So maybe it's a good thing that it takes you a long time to make a decision. It shows that you are thoughtfully considering all sides of the issue. So normalizing that it, it can, it takes a long time to make decisions and that's okay. And then also reinforcing that that's, that can be a great thing too. Next is 6P, ask what the individual knows about COVID in general. Where do they get their info? Who do they trust? Who do they trust? What a wonderful exploratory uh, question. Um, that's great. Really looking to what strengths uh, in the form of uh, social resources someone might have. Uh, where do they get their information? Right. Those are great ideas. Okay. More strategies for rolling with resistance. Emphasizing personal choice and control. This one is so critical and harm reduction shines such a spotlight on this. Where does someone have choice? This comes up a lot in situations where people don't have choice. Maybe they're in a restrictive context. Maybe they're in a situation of 5150, conservatorship, incarceration, uh, probation, parole, whatever. Where does someone have choice? Where do they have control? Enhancing where someone has control. I think we all are experiencing a parallel uh, reality of this right now. We, we probably feel better in these situations when we have a sense of control as there's been such uh, uncertainty and uh, challenges to our sense of control as a whole in the world. All right, siding with the negative. And maybe that you find it's just too difficult to change. It might be hopeless. A little bit of a, a tactic here, but this is an option to diffuse uh, that sort of power struggle that can be stepped into at times. Um, so just taking a little step further, almost over-validating. You hear about that in DBT too. So finding, um, finding a way to align with sort of what you maybe think isn't the, what you should align with, sort of speaking to the opposite of what a helper would, um, that might be something that could release uh, resistance from the situation. And finally, checking in on your agenda. You gotta remember opinions, judgments, feelings, these can be communicated unintentionally and start this power struggle. So I think we, I just spoke to this, but again, thinking of like body language, where you place certain topics in conversation, how frequently you revisit them, uh, everything about how you shape your sentences, um, how much, like what's the balance of questions to reflections, things like that um, are ways agendas get communicated. So we want our agenda to be sitting peacefully on the shelf if it's vastly different from uh, the client's agenda. We want it to just be over here. It doesn't have to be forgotten. We actually want to stay sort of mindfully aware of it. Um, but not sparking a power struggle. And drop the rope just refers to that sort of tug of war that can get started, um, not just in situations where you're trying to apply MI, but our entire, in our entire lives. Um, when you drop the rope, 
disengage from that and just go back to these core skills, that is where change can start to occur. All right, any further comments? Beth, you mentioned above an option is to give him what he needs to stay to find out what he thinks would help, okay. What he, to help him stay safely, a way to explore is to understand his concerns about the IQ bet, right. All right, any further comments on rolling with resistance, on the dignity of risk, on how to, how to find options, how to seek out those gray areas when it seems like it's just a, it is or it an isn't situation when we're really stuck in a bind. All right, so I'm gonna hand it over to Lisa, who's gonna elaborate on strategies. Hi everyone, my name is Lisa Davis. Um, I am an LCSW and I'm also um, the Associate Director of our uh, DMH-UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. Um, and I'm just gonna talk for a couple minutes about another kind of strategy um, for helping us to be able to join with um, the folks that we're working with. It's a little bit different than motivational interviewing, but it's very, very, congruent with the whole approach that we're talking about, about really how to uh, join with and align ourselves with what is really important to the person that we're actually trying to help. So um, this, this approach is really about sort of being able to uncover and connect with and help a person to be able to very um, consciously claim what their values are, what's really most important to that individual that you're working with at that particular moment in time. And we can help somebody to be able to identify really what that is and bring it into the foreground. We want to make it very explicit. And then we can join with them around that value. Um, it's often something they're already expressing but may not be fully aware of it. So we wanna bring it out, we wanna join with them, and we wanna use that as sort of the basis for a, a working relationship. Um, and as you'll see in a moment, I'm gonna sort of break this down a little bit. Oftentimes, it's a behavior or something that really looks like a problem. Um, the, the thing that we are concerned about uh, that this individual is doing or the thing that they're refusing to do, you know, as Elizabeth was mentioning they're you know, they're symptomatic, they're positive, but they're refusing to take the bed. It's the thing that looks like the problem that actually has some kind of a function or a purpose or a meaning to that individual um, that is rooted in a value. That is, there is some reason for that behavior and it's connected to something that's important to them. And it's up to us to try as best we can to understand what that meaning might be so that we can bring it out and that we can uh, help the, the person to actually um, claim that value and, and, and make choices that are based on it. So once we have developed rapport with somebody, we want to see if we can find a way to actually ask them about, you know, what it is that's most important for them at this moment, what it is that that they really want or care about. Um, 
And we find a way of asking that, then the thing that we want to do then is listen very carefully to the response. And we're actually kind of listening in a particular way. Um, when we ask somebody about, you know, help me understand how things are for you right now and what it is that is most important to you at this moment. What we're listening for is something in their words. It could be also something about a behavior, um, a nonverbal communication that is representing something. We want to sort of drop down below the surface of their words or the behavior and sort of think to ourselves, what is the essence of what they're expressing about what is really, really important to them? And let me give you a couple examples of what this might look like. Okay, so let's say you're working with somebody, you're talking with them about how things are for them, what is it that they really want right now, um, and they start talking about the fact that, you know, I really, I cannot budge from this spot, it's really important for them that they're able to connect with their dealer, um, they're talking about getting meth, the most important thing there, it's really clear that what is most key for them is making sure that they can get their meth. And for us, you know, we might feel a little bit stuck at that point. Like we're trying to get at like what's most important to you. Clearly it, for them, it's meth. And we're thinking that seems to sort of um, be an opposition with a goal that I have, which is to sort of get them to a little bit of a safer situation. You know, those two things are at odds, what I'm sort of hoping to help them with. And so what can we do at that point? So the first thing that we can do is ask ourselves, what might the function of meth be? What function might that serve for that individual? What does meth do for this person? What does it give them? How, you know, what, what does it mean to them? You might actually explore that with the person. You might say, can you help me understand a little bit about what meth actually does for you because like you know i can see it's very very important ultimately we're going to sort of take a shot at naming this thing this thing that is uh the meaning of it the value of it um the function of it and we're not going to worry too much about getting it right so we don't have to like figure out oh what is the you know ultimate meaning of this thing i've got to sort of get to this deeper thing we take our best guess about what what this means to the person, what function it's serving. And if we're off base, we'll know. It'll call it it'll fall flat. It might not resonate. And we just keep going until we can find a way to articulate or conceptualize what we think the meaning of this thing is in a way that gets their attention, that they're 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 on board with and they're responding to. So in this example, we might say, you know, the person's talking about needing to get their meth. We might say, you know, it sounds to me like it's really important to you to be able to find a way to be able to just feel good, to feel a sense of relief, to feel a sense of ease, to feel energized, whatever sense we're getting that that drug does for that person whatever cues we're getting about what it might give them. We want to distill that out. We want to, uh, name that underlying thing and affirm it. Now, is it important for, uh, for us to be able to have ways of seeking out, uh, feeling comfort, feeling relief from pain, maybe psychological pain, maybe physical pain? Um, 
do we all need ways to, you know, have something that can help us to relax? Absolutely. That is something that we can get behind and join with the function that that serves. Another example, let's say, again, we just like Elizabeth mentioned, we've got a bed for somebody, we've got a hotel room, they're not budging. And they say, you know, I cannot actually leave this corner. Um, actually, I'm, I'm on a mission from the FBI. And I have to monitor this corner. If, if I were to leave, the aliens might actually take over. Now, we think to ourselves, okay, this is a delusional belief system. What's going to be really, really not effective is trying to challenge whether that's real or not real, trying to use logic to sort of point out to the person that that, you know, that that's not really based in reality. Um, a delusional belief system is not really amenable to that kind of logic. And if we're trying to persuade the person uh, that this is not real, not only is it not going to be effective, they're, we're also going to alienate them. We're, they're not going to see us as being safe. So we can't just sidestep that. We can sidestep that altogether because it's actually not as important whether there are aliens or not aliens as it is to understand what that experience and that role means for that person. So we might say, you know what? I can see how important it is to you that you have this responsibility, this job, and you are very, very committed to this job of monitoring this corner. And you're really, it's important to you to be able to pr help protect other people. So we're not worried about the particulars of the behavior or the belief system. It's the, the role, the meaning that that has for that person. Now, is it important to feel like you have a job and a sense of purpose that you're contributing to others, that you're helping? Absolutely. That is something that is that we all need and want that we can again affirm and get behind. Last example, the person says, look, you people are always trying to control me. You know, I, I don't really care. You know, I don't care if I get housed as long as I'm free, as long as I'm able to be free. You might say to the person, you know, I can see that you are a person that really knows what's important to you. And you really value your independence, being able to make your own choices above all else. And I, I really see that that's a value uh, that you hold and that uh, I can respect that. So again, we're getting to what is underneath what the function of this uh, behavior is uh, and how we can claim it and affirm it. Okay, so once we've got this thing, it's crucial we get the person's buy-in. So if we got this thing going about what the function is, we wanna make sure we're looking to see that there's agreement um, and that there's buying. That's like a hook. That gives us a hook now. We've uh, developed some trust with that person and we've got an agreement around something that uh, they're doing that is important to them. And then we just, we can build that out. So we wanna make sure that we express that we not only see the value they're expressing, but that we respect it, that we honor it, um, and that we want to support them in, in expressing that value. Um, so in this example, again, you know, I'm on a mission from the FBI to monitor this corner. We might say, you know, 
I can see how important it is to you to, to be on duty to help others. You're really an, an important member of this community and you're working really hard to help other people around you. You would never choose to abandon your, your community. Um, all of these statements are affirming the underlying value that the person is expressing and their intrinsic worth as a human being. Um, we're, again, we're not focusing on the particulars of the behavior and we're framing the value in terms of something that we clearly want that the person can do more of, that we can support them in building out and increasing and expanding. So we've got this foundation. Um, we've identified something that they're on board with. Um, it's a, a value underlying their behavior. Then we want to use it again as a springboard. Then we can broaden that out. And all we really need to do actually is just be really curious, actually genuinely curious and sort of wondering out loud with the person about how that might ripple into other areas. So again, in this example, the person's monitoring the corner, we might say, you know, um, actually, you're, you're, this important role that you have in, in helping to protect others, it's, it's almost it's kind of like the EMTs and the nurses, the people that are here responding to the virus, you know, you have a similar kind of dedication to helping to protect others. I'm wondering, what do you think is actually really important um, for, for safety and in, in for your neighbors? What do you think is the most important thing um, that your neighbors could do uh, to help, you know, promote safety or to help protect them? Um, you're just sort of expanding this out. You might also then that could lead to a question about what they might do for themselves in order to continue with what is important to them, their value. So what do you think might help ensure that you can keep going and continue with this important responsibility that you have. What are some of the ways do you think, do you think it's important you might be able to take care of yourself or what might you do so that you can continue to help others in this way? So we're simply opening up options and, and possibilities because it's in service of their value that we've already established that they are in agreement with. And then we've got some leverage to kind of um, expand that out a bit. Okay, um, I just want to acknowledge that many, if not most of you, um, have certainly encountered people that may seem as though they don't really care about anything. They may, they may not indicate that there's anything that they want um, or care about. Um, and for people who seem very withdrawn and unresponsive, um, they may be sort of uncommunicative, First of all, it's important to know that this can be a symptom of psychosis itself. So, for example, um, people with schizophrenia may present as, as looking very unmotivated, sort of undirected, uh, lack of caring or wanting anything. That can be part of a biologically based illness. So that's not like an attitudinal choice. It's not like they're, you know, um, just they're just unmotivated. Um, that's actually part of an illness. So that's important to know. At the same time, though, not caring, not wanting anything um, can also have a psychological uh, component. Um, and 
in terms of not caring about anything and the psychological component, that can be seen as a form of communication. And it's actually a very strong way of communicating. I don't care about anything. I don't really want anything. So when we encounter that, it's important, first of all, to just simply um, reflect that observation. So we want to start by reflecting that back. Something like, you know, it looks like you feel as though there isn't anything that's really important to you or that you really want for yourself right now. And again, going back to our core uh, of this strategy is always asking ourselves, what might the function of that be? We might make some empathic guesses about the function of not caring. Maybe you've been let down so many times, it's really hard to want anything or to have hope. I wonder if it just feels impossible to imagine that anything could ever change or get better. Also, I realized that asking you about what you want means kind of thinking about the future, and that can be really overwhelming. So we're, we're just making empathic guesses, but all of those guesses are, are based on sort of, again, wondering about what might the function of this be. So we certainly don't want to push uh, for people that are not, that are um, ha having trouble engaging, but we, but we want to stay engaged. Um, and that's really important. So you might even say to the person, you know, I want to make it clear that I'm not asking you to do anything right now. I really just want to get a sense of how things are for you right now. Um, so really staying engaged, but uh, letting people know that we're suspending any kind of agenda that we have. So to summarize all of this, we're looking for the simple, but really deep kind of core truth of something that the person cares about. And we can see the value in almost any behavior if we look at it in terms of the function that that serves for the person. We want to name it. We want to get their buy-in um, and get behind it. Look for ways that we can expand the ways that they're expressing that value. And especially over time, as we gain trust, we might be able to link it to behaviors that are supportive of health, um, getting medical treatment, getting shelter, and so on, because it's in the service of their value. Um, so I'm going to pause and see if there are any questions about that. I know that's a lot in a short amount of time. A few comments. Uh, yeah, I think folks uh, and myself included really appreciated that insight. Uh, appreciating the insight on the biopsychological impacts. Um, David loves the focus of on purpose in life. Um, yeah, some helpful yeah. ideas. Really uh, wonderful way to take that. Um, wanting to understand people deeply and really set aside our own uh, agenda to a different level of really trying to understand their values and how we can connect to those. Yeah, okay, great, thank you. All right, so I'm gonna round us out and try and get us wrapped up on time. Let's talk about moving forward with this indefinitely. So what does it mean to be a reliable partner? What does it mean to do this work ongoing? Um, 
So we just want to acknowledge that people are always changing. They're always moving literally, literally and figuratively, and they are dynamic. Nothing is static. Relationships aren't static. Um, someone's thoughts and feelings aren't static. This situation with the pandemic is certainly not static. We have new information, new resources every day, every week. Um, so your job then is to keep up with the person, walk beside them, right? Share that power, no matter what path they take. And going back to the stages of change, as Joanna said, people move through their stages, they can hop around, go any different direction, lapse and relapse and return are expected. Um, and people will make decisions that we think, and I think everyone's had this experience, and I know I certainly have, you have a series of successes. It looks like someone's, you've really worked, partnered with someone and supported them to get to a, a place that objectively seems better than where they were before, and it's in line with their goals, and then everything falls apart. Um, maybe they influence that, that sort of disintegration, maybe it was external factors, whatever. But our job is to then check our sort of disappointment and frustration and all of the difficult emotions that can come up and that, that would then tempt us to want to set agendas and communicate those agendas. Our job is to sort of find a way to digest that in a way that does not cause burnout, that actually keeps us still grounded and satisfied and well in our professional identity. And that's tough work. So this is not easy. This sort of working alongside people, accepting there is risk, uh, making sense of that and not moving to overprotect and not coping by moving to neglect. It's, it's tough work. We've got to walk a bit of a tightrope here. So let's just start at the bottom of this, um, of this slide. What can you do? What, what works for you to stay grounded? Um, how, what sort of resources, what sort of do you talk with your colleagues? Do you have supervision? Do you read books? Do you journal? What can you do to help process these feelings of frustration, disappointment, helplessness, um, lack of control, uncertainty? Uh, maybe some of your own values get really challenged by the choices your uh, clients make. All these things are things we have to we have to make sense of, and it, it helps to usually do it and have a process for it with someone or in a self-reflective way. So, what can you do? Um, when they, to process feelings when there are challenges and helping a client be well and safe. Um, and then moving up. Okay, so Melissa, you've got a, a comment here. What happens when there are two sets of values that are in competition with one another? Um, yeah. They want to make sure that they get their meth, but they also want to address their health or the health of their partner or person they are living with. Yeah. That, that's a perfect example of that's where you have to really look at the full picture um, find out why someone wants that meth, like Lisa was really going into. What's what's the what value does that hold for them? Explore that in a way that doesn't doesn't communicate that using meth is bad. That using meth means there can't be health because both can actually coexist. And our job then is to look for how they can coexist. How can someone's health be best supported? What can they do? Can they have preventative care in place? Can they, if they're smoking meth, can they use different um, pipes or pipe covers? Like what are all the little things that can be done to ensure someone's safety so that both goals can be reached in tandem? Oh, I just want to say, if I could really quickly, this is something that is happens all of the time. We all hold values, in fact, that are often in contradiction with one another. And it's so very powerful, actually, to bring that out very clearly into the foreground. So if you were saying to the person, you know what, it sounds like meth is really important to you, and here's why, and you unpack that. And also, it sounds like your health 
is greatly important to you. And here's why. Isn't, let's look at that. You've got these, you know, in, in some ways you don't have to know how to fix it or what to do. If you're able to really flesh that out and present to the person that they are living with these opposing things and, and really ask them, what are you going to do? How are you going to manage that? Um, making that conscious and explicit is very, very powerful. Um, and we don't want to rush too quickly to uh, yeah. come down on one side or the other. Right. I, very good insight there. And it is so important to remember that substance use or other decisions that have risk uh, involved or may have consequences do not mean that there is a value judgment against the person that they are then uh, thus unhealthy. We have to we have to challenge ourselves to look for how these things can coexist. Um, all right. So a couple last tips. We want to right, we've got, we've got, these are the things we have to follow people through ups and downs, growth and relapse, hope and despair starts and stops. And we have to offer acceptance and compassion going back to pace. That's what we have to offer all throughout. Um, we want to follow through and be consistent. So people, a uh, provider client relationship is an attachment relationship of sorts. And that can be therapeutic for folks who didn't have healthy or secure attachments growing up, or maybe don't know how to conduct those relationships. Um, what we say we're going to do, we want to do, we want to keep boundaries consistent. We want to keep actions consistent with our words. Um, we don't want to reinforce abandonment narratives. We don't want to re-traumatize people via those. Um, and we want to hold hope and a spirit of perseverance, especially when folks can't do that for themselves. And that is going to come up probably a lot right now. I certainly know, you know, in our own lives, we need people to sort of hold that for us uh, when we feel a little downtrodden by the circumstances. So really thinking about how we can think towards strength and hope in ourselves and how we can share that with the folks we support. Um, all right, so that's the end of our content. Any last comments or questions? Uh, everyone is saying thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for participating. Um, this is a lot of talking. I know it's uh, it can be tough to um, have that and in this context not be able to sort of interact and participate so we really appreciate your attending and paying attention and participating to the extent that you did.